The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Um, so we're just going to read uh, 2 Timothy 4, 9 through till the end, um, and then I'll give it back to Jimmy. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Titicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offence, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed at all, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Aniphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sent greetings to you, as do Pudens and Link, Linus sorry, and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Have you ever been tempted to read someone else's mail? Now, I'm not going to get a show of hands because we probably don't want to put our hands up for that. And I haven't been tempted myself, just in case you're wondering. Like, I was trying to think of an example of that this week. And I'm like, no, I don't think I ever have done that, let alone been tempted to do that. If I was to come to your house and see a letter addressed to you, written by somebody else, like in handwriting, see it on your kitchen bench, it would be pretty presumptuous of me to open that letter and read the contents, right? Like, that would be pretty rude, the reason why is because the, that letter is addressed to you. It contains private information for you, for your eyes only. It could provide that information. And the reason why I say that is because as we look at this final section of Paul's second letter to Timothy, it stands out like, oh wait, we're reading Timothy's mail. We're reading a letter from the Apostle Paul to this pastor named Timothy uh, about some issues that are happening in the life of the church. And yes, there has been some really wonderful theological stuff that we could glean from these, from the first few chapters of this, from the first four and a half chapters of this book. And yet we get to the end of it, and it suddenly dawns, it dawned on me this week, I'm reading Timothy's mail here. And the reason why that stood out is because we, we get now, in these last 15 verses of this letter, just some really personal remarks from the Apostle Paul. Get my cloak, bring my books... I sent Tychicus over here, all these things. And really, we get the curtain drawn back on the, the interior life of the Apostle Paul. We, we see actually what's going on underneath the surface. And more than anything else, we get a look at the outworking of grace in Paul's life. Like We know so much about what Paul teaches us in terms of the grace of Jesus Christ, but now we actually get this really in-depth look at, at the way that grace was impacting him personally. This whole section is dripping with God's grace. As we see 
God's amazing grace have its way in Paul's personal and private life. You see, grace is crazy. And grace makes us do crazy things. Grace enables and empowers and motivates us to do the things that would be impossible if it weren't for grace. And what we're going to see in this passage is that grace causes Paul to forgive people when he had every reason not to forgive them. Grace causes Paul to reconcile with people who had previously hurt him. Grace causes Paul to abandon vengeance and leave justice to God. Grace causes Paul to actually put his hand up and reach out for help and say, can you come and help me, Timothy? Grace changes everything. That's the point of this. Grace changes everything. And so he starts this section, this, this, this last few verses, he starts with this little sentence to Timothy, which we're going to camp out in for a while, which is, do your best to come to me soon. Now, that sounds like a pretty inconsequential line, but if you step into the life of Paul, if you step into this ancient world, you'll see this is a mammoth request that he's asking. He's saying, drop everything that you're doing and make sure that coming and seeing me is your highest priority. Now, we're going to talk about why he wants Timothy to come and see him in just a few moments, but his, what he was requesting here from Timothy was a mammoth task. Have you ever requested or summoned somebody like this? Like maybe you said to someone, hey, maybe your neighbor, hey, could you come over and help out move this table this afternoon? Or maybe it's to a family member or a friend, hey, could you come and look after the kids for a few hours while we go out and do such and such? Well, for Paul, his request of Timothy here is not just a summons to come next door or to the next suburb or even just a couple of hours away. Paul was summoning Timothy to Rome from Ephesus. A journey that would take him over land and sea. A journey that would take him around four to six months to complete. And so for Timothy to do what Paul is requesting here, for Timothy to do what Paul is asking here, would, including the, 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 their journey and the return, would take no less than about a year to complete. It's a, it's a mammoth task. He's asking Timothy to put his life on hold for at least a year. So the question I have is, what could possibly cause Paul, possess Paul, to make such an outrageous claim. So it makes such an extreme request of Timothy, particularly considering everything that we've just learned about this church over the last seven weeks. This instruction doesn't make sense unless, of course, Paul knew that both he and Timothy were drinking from the same well of grace. Unless, of course, he knew that Timothy, that in Timothy there would be a willingness from him to drop what he was doing and go and see Paul, as well as a willingness from Paul to actually put up his hand and ask for Timothy to come and do this. Paul knows that the grace of Jesus Christ forges in us nothing less than a willingness to lay down one's life for another. Let me say that again. Paul knows that the grace of Jesus Christ forges in us nothing less than a willingness to lay down one's life for another. What, what does it take us? What does it take for us to ask for help? The more I think about this, and the more I uncover this in my own heart, the more I believe that our inability to ask for help from other people is a bit of a rotten issue in our hearts and lives. I need to confess, this is an issue that I struggle with, asking other people for help. And, and yet, I, I'm yet to get to the bottom of it, I think it has something to do with the fact that I, 
a lack of faith in the power of God's grace to enable someone else to serve me. I think that's at the bottom of my own heart's uh, problem of not asking for help. It's a lack of faith in, in the power of grace to actually trust that someone would be willing to come and help me and serve me. Let me put it to you this way. Um, my son, Banjo, and I, we've been um, spending quite a bit of time together the last few weeks. My wife, Kirsty just got a new job, so him and I have got a, quite a lot of time together, and we've been talking a lot about utes. Turns out him and I are both into utes, both into four-wheel-drive utes, so we just, that takes up a lot of conversation, like a lot of conversation is about utes. Um, I'm more of a Hilux man, he's more of a Ford Ranger man, um, they're all boy, um, the reason why he's into Ford Rangers is because Ford has a, a Ranger called the Raptor Ranger, like Velociraptor, and so he, that's, his, that's his jam. Um, he wants a four-door diesel uh, Ford Ranger Raptor, he wants a yellow one, um, he wants it to have a snorkel because he's learned about snorkels, um, he wants a tub on the back rather than a tray, I keep telling them the tray is far more versatile, it's far more better for you. He said, no, the tray looks terrible, you should have a tub, Dad. And so we go back and forth and back and forth. And this past week, he said to me, hey, Dad, why don't we just go out and get one? <laughs> now, that makes sense for a five-year-old. It makes less sense for a 35-year-old. And the reason why he was so audacious to say, why don't we just go and get one, is because he's seen me purchasing things at the register with my card, and that's just like magic to him. Like, I just can buy anything, and behind this card is an endless ocean of cash, apparently. There's definitely not, but that's what he thinks. So in his mind, considering that there is an endless supply, an endless bank of cash behind this card, Dad, why don't we just go and get a Ford Ranger? Get a yellow one. We can go four-wheel drive together. You can get a Hilux. I'll get a Ranger. It'll be great. Because he believes that there's this endless supply of money, he's so bold as to ask for something outrageous. And the same thing that goes for grace. The more we discover and learn about grace, we discover there's an endless ocean of grace. And that should cause us to ask for big things, not just from God, but from one another. For Paul to say, drop everything, put your life on hold, and come now, portrays a kind of belief about the depths of grace that he believes is, is possessing Timothy's life and the way that grace changes and shapes Timothy's priorities. Paul is banking on the power of the grace of Jesus Christ in Timothy's life to prioritize Paul over himself. There's an endless supply of grace for us in God's loving kindness towards us. He is so merciful to us. And there's really no limit to how much we can learn about grace and how deep we can go about understanding the grace of God, that he is high and lifted up. He is infinite in majesty. He is the God who is omnipotent. He's powerful in every single way. He is the God who is omniscient. He is wise beyond all things. He is the God who is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere all at once. He is the God who is omnibenevolent. Everything that he does is good. He is the God who is merciful. He is the God who is kind. The God who is infinitely lovely and beautiful. And yet, sinners like you and I, we just aren't that. And still, God comes to us and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us in a supreme act of the loving grace. This is the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son to us, that we can put our faith in him and actually get to know this God and have a relationship with him. That he loves us, he likes us, <clears throat> he treasures us, he thinks we're great, so great in fact, that he wants us to spend eternity with him. That's the wonderful news of the gospel. 
that such a perfect, incredible God would come and love sinners like us. The, the greatest power we could ever have in our tanks is the knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ. The knowledge that God has moved heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves, as J.I. Packer says. Paul creates a bit of a foundation for this in his letter to the Philippian church. That Jesus did not count equality with, a God, with God as a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, becoming human, and humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Because Jesus dropped everything for Timothy, Paul has no problem expecting that Timothy will drop everything and come to him. And of course we know from the life of Paul that Paul has also had no problem in dropping everything in order to serve those around him. That there is the grace of God, the power of the grace of God. And for Paul, grace perpetuates itself in such a way that in a sinner's heart that God's people should be bold to ask big things of God's people. We should be bold to ask for help. If you need help with something in our church, we should ask for help. You should put your hand up, whether it's comfort and encouragement, someone to talk to you. Whether it's material needs, whether it's a prayer point, ask for help. Say, hey, I'm not doing very well right now. We need that. You need that. Our, our, our church body needs that. We need to trust one another more and more with that because it only testifies about the limitless bank of the grace of Jesus Christ. It tells a story that there is a God who gives immense grace to us. Because we have everything we need in Christ, we can give everything away for his glory. When I think about this, I think of the Apostle Peter, who, who would not be served by Jesus. Do you remember that? On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus comes around, washing the disciples' feet. He gets to Peter. Peter says, no way. How, how does Jesus respond to that? If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Obviously, the penny drops for Peter. He didn't realize that was on the line. He thought Jesus was just washing feet. I was like, oh, if that's the case, Lord, then wash all of me, head to foot. Not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And then as Jesus finished up that duty, he instructed his disciples to go and do the same for one another. Reading from verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Can we, can we grow in our trust of one another? That if God has commanded us to wash one another's feet, that our feet should get washed by one another? I'm not sure about you if you've ever had, been to a Maundy Thursday service where you actually get to wash someone's feet and someone washes your feet. I can tell you this, it's a lot easier to wash someone else's feet than to have your feet washed by someone. It's weird. It's awkward. When it's your brother-in-law, you make eye contact, you're like, what's going on here? I'm not sure how I feel about this. And it's a humbling experience. It's the kind of experience that makes you feel exposed, makes you feel, oh gosh, we need to do this. Can I, can I challenge us as a church that there's a, there's a challenge here to serve one another and equally there's a challenge here to be served by one another? And if we're refusing to serve or be served by the body of Christ, then what we have is a gospel problem. And what we need is a gospel solution. We need to receive the grace of God again. We need to understand the depths of the grace of God again. We need to understand that Jesus, high and lifted up, the Lord of heaven and earth, <clears throat> condescended to, to mankind 
and lay down his life for us in the most despicable way. We need to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. So why does Paul want Timothy to come to him? The answer is in the next verse. For Demas, and that for is very, very important, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The reason why Paul wants Timothy by his side is because, Timothy, because Demas is no longer there. Demas has deserted him, and now Paul wants, among other things, the kindness and love of his brother Timothy by his side. The desertion of Timothy would have been a hard thing for Paul to bear. Sorry, the desertion of Demas, sorry, would have been a hard thing for, Timothy, for Paul to bear. Demas was not a nobody. Demas was actually part of the inner circle of Paul's ministry for a long amount of time. Paul wasn't after someone who could just say, he wasn't saying, hey, Timothy, can you just come and bring, bring, my, bring my cloak and my things and my books and my parchments? He wasn't looking for someone who could simply supply a few errands. He wasn't, he, he, he wasn't needing someone who could just pick up a few things. He needed the companionship of a close friend, the one whom he called son. He wanted Timothy by his side. We said before that grace forges in us nothing less than a willingness to lay down one's life for one another. Now the point is this. Grace forges relationships that are deep as oceans. Grace forges relationships that are as deep as the ocean. Grace forges the kind of relationships where we can be vulnerable with one another and we can be open with one another and we can walk by one another and we can walk alongside one another. You, you and I, we need to have deep grace-centered, grace-saturated relationships where we can be vulnerable with one another. We need those kind of relationships where we can be uh, exposed before one another, where our hearts can be exposed before one another. But this is risky, right? It's really risky. Because what if I do open myself up to somebody? What if I do make myself vulnerable before them? What if they do find out the worst about me and then I find out they're a demis and they desert me at my hour of need? I've experienced that on more than one occasion where, where I've opened myself up to somebody hoping that they're going to reciprocate and it's turned sour. Or maybe I've opened myself up to somebody and we've walked away, walked for a time together but then it reaches a point where it's just they're nowhere to be found. It It hurts. It stings my heart. This is the risk of a community that is built on grace. This might be the reason why you're hesitant to be involved in community. It might be the reason why you're hesitant to make yourself vulnerable before other people. Maybe you've been burnt already by this and you don't want to go down that path again. Friends, can I, can I encourage you that even though there is a great risk in, in making yourself vulnerable with the community like this, the the benefits of having people in your life who can hear the very worst of you and love you anyway far outweigh the shadow of isolation and superficial friendships. Deep, grace-saturated relationships within community demonstrate and display God's love for us as few things can. Tim Keller says this, he says, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us.
God knows just how much of a sinner we are. He knows just how far we would stray from him. He knows the depravity of our own hearts. God knows about the secret lust. He knows about the unquenchable greed. He knows about our addiction to gossip. And yet, that did not stop Jesus from going to the cross. Isn't that great? Like if that didn't deter him before going to the cross, then it certainly won't deter him from sending us his love now. In Jesus, we are fully known and fully loved. And one of the greatest evidences and testimonies of that is having deep, vulnerable, grace-saturated relationships within the community of believers. Now, I'm not saying that having a friend by our side uh, is a good replacement for Jesus. Because it's not. And I don't believe that. And this text doesn't allow us to actually say that. But the reality of Christ Jesus by our side is so clearly demonstrated and experienced as people around us who are just as broken as us walking beside us in life because they know that Jesus stands there too. Paul continues to list other people who are no longer with him, Crescens and Titus, they've both left. Um, We've got no reason to actually think that those guys actually deserted Paul like Demas did, Um, but those departures are still painful. People who just move on, it's, it's hard. And it should be hard. We, we said goodbye last week to Javen and Holly who moved to Coffs Harbour. And, and man, it's, it, for the three weeks leading up to last Sunday and for this last week, it's still hurt. It's still like, man, it's rough. They sent us some photos yesterday about their, of their place. Typical Javen Holly, Holly fashion. It's like beautiful. It's like a little cottage with a loft on a lake with like an outdoor kitchen. And it's just like, we looked at it like, oh, it's totally them. Um, they're loving it. They're having a really great time. We're so proud of them. We're so grateful for them. We're so grateful that God has, has got them on the path that he's got them on. But it still hurts. And it should hurt. Because this is what community is like. This is what grace-centered community is like. Luke is with Paul still. Luke was a doctor and a traveling partner of Paul. Um, Luke, wrote the book of, sorry, Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Um, Paul also says, send Mark along with you. Uh, and, and Mark also wrote a gospel, and his story needs a bit of retelling because there's something really wonderful here. It teaches us here about the reconciliation of grace, reconciling power of grace. Grace generates reconciliation between enemies. Mark had been a travel companion of Paul's for quite some time, aided him in his ministry. But if you go back and you read Acts chapter 15, you'll see that Mark and Paul have a bit of a dispute and Barnabas is caught up in there. And there's a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas over Mark. And so they depart ways. And, and it was a serious fight. It was a serious thing that happened there. It wasn't a small dispute. And so for Paul at this stage in the letter to Timothy to say, send Mark along with you. He is very useful to me for ministry. That speaks volumes about the power of grace to generate reconciliation between people who have parted ways. And it's a really beautiful thing when that happens. Uh, I've shared this story before, but a number of years ago, I I had a very sharp disagreement with um, a brother in Christ. And he said some things, and he did, did some things which really, really hurt. And I got really angry at him. And for the following few years, I... I couldn't think about him except with anger and frustration and just hostility in my heart. But then there came a moment where we had to be reconciled. We, we both knew it somehow. 
well, not somehow, we know it was the Holy Spirit. I knew he was going to be there that day. He knew that I was going to be there that day. And so I went kind of going, felt very strongly by the Spirit, it's time to, it's time to repent. It's not time for me to go and tell him all the things that he did wrong. It's time for me to actually go and ask for forgiveness for holding hostility in my heart for him for years. And we saw one another. We confessed our sin to one another. We embraced one another. We forgave one another. And we prayed for one another. And I got a brother back. And now I, I can't think of him with hostility in my heart. Like, like literally in the space of five minutes had my heart just turned from this direction to that direction, from hostility towards love. He, he's now pastoring a church down in southwest Brisbane. I just love the man. I adore the man. Nothing changed uh, in terms of the past. Not, nothing was erased. That still happened. Things were said that were regretted. But the power of grace created this reconciliation between us and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. I want you to think now of someone who you've fallen away from, someone in your life who you've parted ways. Think of that dispute in your life. Think about how it might have dragged on for years and years. Maybe it's your fault, maybe it's not. Maybe you don't even remember what the original dispute was about. But the only hope that that relationship has is the grace of Jesus Christ. Because when we see that we've been forgiven by God, it frees us up to forgive others. The degree to which we can forgive someone else is an indicator of how much we have received the forgiveness of God ourselves. So do you have unforgiveness in your heart? If you do, it probably doesn't look like unforgiveness. It probably looks like anger and hostility. Like you can't think of that person without being fueled with anger. It's like a fire within you. It's like a bonfire. That you just, the more you think about it, it's like every second you think about it, it's like another log you're putting on this bonfire and it gets bigger and bigger. It probably doesn't feel like that's, that's unforgiveness. It just feels like anger and, and annoyance. And you probably remember that scenario, that story and what happened. You probably remember that story and you're the hero and the victim of that story. The only hope that we have is the power of grace to forgive. We need to see that grace generates reconciliation by showing us that we, <coughs> excuse me, that we have been forgiven by Jesus for far more than we will ever, ever have to forgive another person. Moving on to verse 14, Paul opens up about someone who did cause him great pain. Alexander the coppersmith. Now, Alexander was a fairly common name back then, so we don't know exactly who this person was. All we know is that this person, Alexander, he opposed Paul's message and caused him a great deal of anguish. But pay attention to Paul's instruction to Timothy about that. What does he say? What does he tell Timothy to do? Nothing. He tells him to be cautious about him, tells him to be careful of him, but he doesn't say, you know, go and spread some rumors about Alexander the coppersmith. Or go buy a copper from somewhere else, Timothy, because don't, don't, we don't want to give him uh, any kind of business. He just says, quite profoundly, quite amazingly, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, there is a Mount Everest amount of weight in that sentence there. <laughs> the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's huge. You see, as Christians, we are called to turn the other cheek, knowing full well that vengeance belongs to God. God is just. And one day, God will bring perfect justice to every wrong ever committed. 
And if you've joined us this morning and you're not a Christian, then that should be of great concern to you. Because it means that you will be held to account for every single uh, instance of injustice ever committed by your hands. And if you are a Christian, then you will breathe a sigh of joy-filled and uh, astonished relief because your account has been paid. Every injustice that you've ever committed and every injustice that you you will continue to commit has been placed onto the very broad shoulders of Jesus Christ. He absorbed God's wrath for them in your place. Someone is going to have to pay for your sins. And that can either be you in your future or that can be Jesus Christ in his past. But somebody will have to settle that account. And so grace makes it possible to not retaliate because we know that God is just. God is going to bring perfect justice to that scenario. He's not going to be heavy-handed with his justice. He's not going to be uh, um, passive in his justice. It's going to be absolutely perfect justice. Now, as we approach verse 16, Paul then opens up about a moment where, which he refers to as his first defense. It's unclear precisely what Paul means by this. It might be a pre-trial arraignment, but what we do know is that at this particular moment, no one was standing by Paul at the stage. We don't know where Luke was. Maybe he was on mission somewhere. We don't know where the others were. Maybe just standing next to someone who was about to receive capital punishment was just going to be too hard. Whatever the case, in this moment, Paul was deserted by people. It stung. But note what he says about these people. Again, may it not be charged against them. Paul was walking in the great and remarkable footsteps of Stephen, the first ever Christian martyr, who, as those stones came down upon Stephen's head, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Paul was there. Paul approved of Timothy's death. Paul would have heard Timothy say those words, and no doubt those words had an impact on Paul's life, so that at the end of his life he can say, may it not be charged against them, may it not be held against them. Grace gives us a kind of long-suffering that comes from Jesus Christ, who himself said as he was crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But even though no human person stood next to Paul at his defense, Paul knew that Jesus was by his side. We come to verse 17, and I think verse 17 is one of the most important verses here. It says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Paul was deserted by his friends, but that was okay because he knew that not only was Jesus with him, but he also knew that God was still at work. God was actually working through this moment. And what we get here is that this verse becomes the closing word of a story that actually began years earlier. <clears throat> Going back to the beginning of Paul's ministry, Paul was uh, given the mission of, by Jesus to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, this was no small thing. It was a, a massive changing in the gears of salvation history. And you can track this as you read through Acts. And we read in Acts 21 that Paul turned up to Jerusalem hoping that his fellow, Jews, his fellow Jews would hear the gospel and respond to the gospel. <clears throat> Upon arriving, when Paul got to Jerusalem that time, uh, he did everything in his power to show the rest of the Jews that his ministry to the Gentiles was, was actually a fulfillment of everything that God had been doing since Abraham. But his fellow countrymen 
they rejected the gospel. They rejected um, this, plan, this as the plan of God. <clears throat> and so they beat and they flogged Paul to the point that the Roman authorities who were there were concerned that, body, that Paul's body would be torn apart. And they escorted Paul away from the, the crowds with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and they put him in a, in a, in a cell in, in Jerusalem, in the Roman barracks in Jerusalem. Paul would have been devastated. He would have been crushed by this. His countrymen, his fellow Jews, had rejected the saviour of the world. This would have been one of the darkest nights for Paul. But the following night, we can read this in Acts 23, sitting in the cell of the Roman barracks in Jerusalem, Paul had a visitor. It wasn't an angel, it was the Lord Jesus himself. Luke writes in Acts 23:11, The Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. <clears throat> For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify also in Rome. Now, let me just read to you 2 Timothy 4.17 again. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So can you see the similarities between Acts 23.11 and 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17? That these two, uh, these two verses are almost like bookends of the same story. This is why he knows that Jesus was by his side. Three important factors connect these stories and they make them bookends. The first connector is that on both occasions, the Lord stood by him. In Acts 23, um, it appears that it was a physical manifestation of Jesus. Whether or not this was the case in Rome, we're not too sure. Either way, Jesus knows, Paul knows that Jesus, visibly or not, was by his side. The second connector is that the Lord strengthened him on both occasions. On the first occasion, Jesus said to him, take courage. In that night in Acts, in Acts 23, in, in, that, in that Roman uh, barrack. Take courage. That word to take courage, that phrase there, it's filled with comfort. In the New Testament, only Jesus uses that word, that phrase. And every time, it is for the comfort of the person who gets to hear Jesus say it. So to the paralytic in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus said, Take heart or courage, son, your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> in Matthew 9, to the woman <clears throat> with perpetual bleeding, Jesus said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. When he came to the frightened disciples on the stormy sea of Galilee, Matthew 14, uh, Jesus said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. On the night before his crucifixion in John 16, Jesus said to his confused disciples, Take heart, I have overcome the world. <clears throat> and then in Acts 23.11, on the fifth occasion of this word in the New Testament, Jesus says to Paul in a prison in Jerusalem, Take courage. And this leads us to our third connector, which is Paul's mission. In the prison cell at Jerusalem, Jesus encouraged Paul that all the things that were happening to him at that moment were to serve the purpose of the gospel going to the Gentiles. He says, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And here is Paul in Rome testifying about the facts of Jesus. Friends, God's purposes will always be fulfilled. Whether that's through prosperity and pain, 
Whether that's through comfort or calamity, through trials and tribulations, or through ease and rest, God's purposes will always be fulfilled. God's plan for the salvation of sinners will come to fruition. And his plans for us, though they might sting and hurt at the time, they are purposed by God for our good. Paul went through the pain and now he has the opportunity to proclaim Christ to the Roman world and to the Gentiles around him. This is why he can say, I was rescued from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So even in Paul's death, it is to bring glory to God so that he can, uh, he can go have safe passage into heaven. Friends, only a person filled with the grace of Jesus Christ can actually say this. Grace is crazy. It makes us say crazy things. It makes us do crazy things like death has lost its sting. Death is now my safe passage into heaven. What can, what can scare us now? What can terrify us now? If death is the safe passage into heaven, then everything else has lost its teeth. So we can say with Paul then, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, if if you're worried or concerned about what is going on around us, take courage. Jesus is by your side. We are in strange days. Stranger days, no doubt, lie ahead. The comforts and the pleasantries that we might have been raised on will simply not be enough to sustain us or to strengthen us. We need to be strengthened by the grace of God. We need to know that Jesus is by our side and he is saying to us, take courage. Listen to the words of Jesus as he says, take courage. Let's hear those words again and hear them said to us, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Friends, Hard days lie ahead and we need to rely on the grace of God, the grace of Jesus Christ to push us deep in relationship with one another and to hold us together, to hold us together as a church. Our unity as the body of Christ is going to be tested and we'll feel feel the pull and temptation to find our identity in something other than Jesus Christ. We need to remember that what holds us together, what binds us together is far more powerful than anything else. We might be tempted to abandon those who who disagree with us. We might feel tempted to abandon those who don't hold the same position on us as certain things. Jesus says, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Our, Our faith is going to be tested. And we're going to feel the pull to desert our Lord for the love of the world and for the love of self. We'll look at what we might lose or what we might miss out on if we continue to be faithful to Jesus and instead pursue what the world can offer. Friends, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. So as we finish this letter in 2 Timothy, may we be strengthened by grace. May we be a people who are strengthened by grace. May we be a people who stand, who, know that, who knows that the Lord stands by our side. Stand by a brother. He too is in Christ. Stand by him because Jesus is by your side. Stand by your sister. She too is in Christ. Stand by her because Jesus is by your side. Stand by their side because of grace. Beloved, take courage from the strengthening 
grace of Jesus Christ. He is by your side and nothing can separate you from him. So let's be strengthened by him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.